0: Welcome, this is Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Perian Boring, the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Digital Commerce and distinguished fellow at Georgetown University. Welcome, Perian. Thanks, Tyler. So I think you are probably one of the earliest adopters of the digital asset space that I've ever met. Um, but interestingly, I think you've always kind of approached it more from a public policy perspective. So you were a legislative analyst in the House of Representatives before you founded the chamber. So I'm curious, like talking through your journey from I guess politics into crypto, or was crypto first, and then you went directly into politics to try and influence it. Like, what's the Perian story?
1: Yeah, and I'll clarify that. Policy, because okay. I do not like politics. Okay. I like policy. Like politics is the campaigning and getting yeah. people over and ugh, you know, not my favorite thing. Um, the policy, the substance of laws and regulations impacting our country. So uh, I guess the original Perry Ann story, I'll go back. I'm a native Floridian. I grew up in a small town called Lakeland. Um, I studied at the University of Florida. My major was economics. Um, and I was there during the financial crisis of 08. And the financial crisis was largely the housing market blowing up, which was basically the state of Florida, which was everybody I knew. So I didn't know anybody that wasn't impacted by what was happening. And as someone studying economics, um, me and a couple of my friends, we were really pressing our professors, like what is going on in real time? And it just, the process was interesting because our professors had a hard time explaining that. Our textbooks didn't explain it. My macro book was written by Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Fed at the time, um, which was just a bunch of math equations. It didn't have anything about human action and what had actually happened. Um, so I um, kind of went on my own independent study uh, to learn about monetary policy and fiscal policy and try to understand why we had gotten to, to where we had to bail out the banks and you know everything else that, that followed. And um, I felt like where our nation stood did not truly represent the values that I was brought up on. So at an early age, I dedicated my career to fighting for economic policy better policies for a more sound monetary system for my generation and those will that that will come after me so I went to DC uh, I did my internship at the White House and then I went to Congress and worked in the House um, and while I was there I was working on all sorts of kind of free market pieces of legislation and um, actually a signature piece of legislation I worked on was the Jobs Act which brought us crowdfunding and peer-to-peer lending rules. Um, And one of my friends, and I was a big advocate, and I did a lot of work to try to push that through the legislative process. And one of my friends was like, you know, you like this crowdfunding stuff. You may like this Bitcoin thing. It's this virtual currency. It's not controlled by government or by corporations. I just think, you know, given kind of your political views, uh, this may be interesting to you. And it was absolutely fascinating to me as somebody um, working in monetary policy, the idea of having a Currency outside of state control was super interesting, and that was in 2011 ish. Wow. And uh, I'm still on that journey.
0: And I mean, I got to ask you then, like, how much Bitcoin did you buy in 2011? <laughs> I hope it was a lot.
1: Well, I worked for the government. I was making forty-two thousand dollars <laughs> okay. a year, so I had like five dollars over to buy beer on the weekend. So, fortunately, I didn't buy that much. And it was never about getting yeah. rich. To me, it was. This, this technology is how we can move towards a more sound and inclusive monetary system. Like that's why I got in it. And it wasn't really until later that I kind of understood the, 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 the monetary uh, power of Bitcoin, given mm-hmm. it's been the best performing asset 10 out of the past 12 years. Um, but uh, it really was about you know, having a better uh, economy.
0: So you spent a couple of years like, learning about cryptocurrency while working uh, at the White House or or the Senate. Um, But you founded the chamber in 2014, I think. So what led to the actual founding of the chamber? What gave you the you know what was the catalyst or the impetus to actually set something up yourself?
1: So I left the hill to go into media and I was working as a reporter for RT America. And I had my own show <laughs> called Prime Interest. And we, um, Bitcoin was one of my beats. So I became one of the first, if not the first international um, television people, journalists to report on Bitcoin. And that was in the year of 2013. Um, which I like to say the, the, the best gift you could ever give anybody a journalist is Bitcoin in 2013, because that was the breakout year for Bitcoin. We had the bailouts from Cyprus, and that was when Bitcoin had its first international headlines because people in Cyprus started buying Bitcoin, and given the economic uncertainty around the bailouts and the haircuts. And then you had Silk Road and Mt. Gox, two big kind of public disasters that, in my opinion, were still uh, repairing the, the PR damage from That, Um, but really, I'm a policy person. I ended up in news, I was recruited, and I enjoyed it. But uh, I had the opportunity to follow Bitcoin at its infancy. Uh, But after doing that for some time, um, you know, we saw how the regulatory machine was responding to these issues of a a massive bankruptcy and an illicit operation. And to me, it became very clear that the industry needed to have representatives in our nation's capital guiding them in this technology. Because what I was reading in the mainstream news and media was not totally accurate. And so that led uh, later to kind of the concept of, of the chamber. And we launched the chamber a year after that in 2014.
0: So, I mean, it's nearly 10 years ago. It's eight years in. What have been some of the key milestones for the chamber in that time?
1: <sighs> key milestones. Well, we're still here. <laughs> yeah,
0: that in and of itself we made it is to an eight achievement. eight years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so there's been a couple. We're, we're predominantly a policy organization, and there's been a couple key fights that we've been on the, on the front lines of. Um the first was actually the bit license. So we're here recording in New York. New York was the first state to put forward a licensing regime for digital assets. It's you know it's not called the, the, the bit license. Um, that launched or the the first draft of the regulations were published two days before we launched the chamber. So we launched the chamber and then everybody you know wanted to know you know what's your position on the mm-hmm. bit license? Um, and we were the first advocacy organization for the digital asset industry, so we really had an opportunity to build a coalition and a campaign with just very, very little time to get organized. Um, and we were able to delay the bit license significantly. We got a petition going. We had the whole industry weigh in to this, to the New York Department of Financial Services and say, "Hey, this is incredibly comprehensive. Um, it's a duplicative regime." Uh, How is this gonna apply to the money transmitter regime? There's still a lot of questions and the industry really hasn't had time to fully understand the implications of this to provide thoughtful input. And we successfully got delays of the implementation of the bit license. It's still here, we still have work to do in terms of rolling that back and fixing all the inconsistencies and the challenges businesses have navigating that. Um, But it really was an amazing achievement that just the day we launched, we had the opportunity to fight this campaign. Because if you remember the industry back in 2014, it was very different that, than it is today. Copper is very much involved in an institutional community, but our roots are from more of a cypherpunk, kind of anti-establishment ecosystem. And I didn't know when we launched this, if this was gonna be uh, something that people campaigned against because there, you know, frankly, were a lot of people who did not want to engage with regulators and policymakers. So, off the bat, it was just an amazing um, experience to see so many people receptive that we have to work with our policymakers in order to make this industry and this technology available for the masses. So that really set the tone. And since then, we've ran a ton of other campaigns um, on the, the AML front. We did a huge campaign around the implementation of the travel rule. We actually got a <laughs> to reverse its decision on the travel rule. I don't know if that's necessarily ever been done before, um, but we launched a whole legal campaign really challenging how they put that forward, and we got them to do an about-face on that. Um, We also, um, two years ago, over the Christmas holiday, um, for those who are the policy wonks like myself, I don't know if you are, Tyler, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, the Treasury wanted to put forward this self-hosted wallet rule. Um, And we had to threaten a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of the Treasury over Christmas. Um, So that was definitely a very memorable moment. I was home with my family. I'm like, I can't believe this is what I'm spending my holiday doing. I never envisioned that we would be kind of at this level of engagement. But here we are. Um, And we made significant achievements. That rule still has not been brought forward or implemented. And then this week, the state of New York, back to New York, wants to ban Bitcoin mining. So we've got another campaign on the ground right now trying to stop New York from um, really impacting its transition to a more sustainable um, uh, uh, energy ecosystem by just putting a moratorium on proof of work.
0: Before we sat down, I was also musing about whether... U.S. regulators or legislators look to other jurisdictions. Um, I mean, copper's predominantly a U.K.-based company, so you know, we look very closely at what's going on in the EU or Sweden, and they've recently had um, like proof-of-work banning bills go before their parliament. So do you get a sense that the U.S. watches other jurisdictions and either takes cues from or wants to lead in certain areas over others?
1: Not particularly. The United States really wants to dominate in terms of everything. And I think the U.S., um, in terms of policymaking, at least at the federal level, very much wants to kind of set the the pace and set the tone from an international perspective and expects that many other countries will follow suit. Uh, The U.S. also leverages international organizations to drive the U.S.'s policy mandates and positions. Um, We've seen this at the Bank for International Settlements and the Basel Committee. We've also seen this at the OECD and FADIP, the Financial Action Task Force, which is a part of the OECD, as it applies uh, AML requirements on the digital asset ecosystem. So you do see very strategically how uh, we are leveraging international bodies to get our policies implemented in other jurisdictions around the world, and they've been pretty Um, successful in doing that so at the chamber we today we're predominantly focused on federal policy we are doing international work with these groups that I've mentioned and others and then we also do some state work too
0: so at the chamber I mean how do you how do you choose the priorities because I mean because blockchain is a new thing and it impacts or could potentially impact almost every sector every vertical um, from our perspective it's mostly financial services where the where we see the benefits for DLTs and blockchains and is that the chamber's focus still? Because I know you guys also look at supply chain management, um, blockchain implications. How, how do you choose what to focus on? Because you can <laughs> do anything or everything, but you're, you're still a smallish organization Yeah, in terms of human capacity.
1: It's such a good question because bandwidth is constantly our number one challenge, even with ad- additional resources. And we've brought on a lot of new resources just in the past several months. Um, you have to be very focused and strategic about where you're involved um, because public policy is it's a relationship business for one. Um, you can have the best idea in the world, but if nobody likes you or they don't trust you, you know good luck on your advice, you know resonating with others. Um, so, the majority of the policy issues that we work on are, are a lot of times in defensive positions. And I'm using this, <laughs> This I have my arms up the in the air, up. it's like I'm rolling yeah. a boulder up a mountain because that's what I feel like I've been doing for the past eight plus years. Um, there's a number of places, particularly in the States, where you have a lot of positive energy for crypto and digital assets and blockchain technology. You have different members, state members, legislators who are excited about this space, and they want their state to be a leader. And so they want to pass, you know, laws to attract businesses to their state. That's great. We certainly could spend a lot of time finessing that to make it super impactful. But at the end of the day, if we have imminent threats, that's where we're going to go. And that's why we're in the state of New York This year, and we've been here since last year fighting against this ban because a ban, this would be the first time a state in the nation banned any part of the digital asset ecosystem. And New York is a leader in terms of states. Many states look to New York um, to follow suit, and we don't want that tone being set. So uh, a lot of our policy work is fighting against the biggest threats. And my goal <laughs> is to get to where we can be a lot more proactive and start promoting more positive things than just having to fight back. But uh, that is a luxury and that's something as a community we're going to have to build towards.
0: In your, in your show and tell segment for us, you sort of gave us a good overview of the, the alphabet soup of U.S. regulators <laughs> um, in the same way that you have to sort of prioritize which um, policies to advocate for even in a defensive posture I mean which regulators do you find yourself working more with or less with which ones do you find have the most influence at the moment is it just a loud voice or are other people regulators who are actually you know getting the job done
1: yeah it kind of changes because um, wh- uh, we'll be engaged, you know, mostly when there's rulemakings, when there's an opportunity to provide input on rules and regulations that are in the process of being implemented into law. So we've done a ton of work over the years with the CFTC, with the SEC, with FinCEN, with bank regulators. Um, right now, a lot of our efforts are focused on Congress um, for a couple of reasons. One, There are some agencies, we don't have to call names, unless you really want me to. Yeah, Uh, yeah, of course. There are some agencies that are holding this industry to a different standard and are acting very inconsistent when it comes to how their laws apply to digital assets and blockchain technology. There's a lack of regulatory clarity and there's many businesses that are being seriously harmed by that. So when you have a regulator that's not following its own mandate, not following its own rules, what you do is you call Congress because Congress oversees the regulators. And there are significant efforts in Congress to provide oversight over these agencies where they are you know, frankly not doing their job. Um, so today that is a huge focus is educating members of Congress, bringing awareness to where the agencies are harming the growth of this industry and trying to provide a legislative path forward to being regulatory clarity for our businesses that are operating here.
0: Do you find, um, so the president's executive order, which was only a month ago or less, is that making it easier to have these conversations with Congress, or does no one, like? it, it kind of seemed like from the outside it's a bit of a non-statement. You know, I mean, it's powerful because it came from the president's office, and it's probably the first time a president's put out as much thought leadership on, Correct. on crypto. But at the end of the day, I mean, if I had to summarize the whole thing, it was like we're gonna keep looking at it. Is that fair? That's
1: progress, Tyler.
0: <laughs> that is what
1: progress looks they like. They know for who regulators. we are. Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Uh, no, I think your kind of interpretation is 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 relatively accurate. I think a lot of people had that. I think, you know, they read through it. And was like, okay, this doesn't it doesn't do a lot. So it's been described as the starting gun. So it, there's a couple. I think, accomplishments for the industry. One, it clearly states from the highest level of government that blockchain is a critical and emerging technology, and we want the United States to be a global leader in this ecosystem. And I'll tell you why that's important, because in the agencies, we have an enforcement-first posture, where we're not providing meaningful guidance And regulatory clarity to the industry. Instead, we're making them kind of guess what the rules to the road are. And if you mess up, we're going to come after you. So that provides very chilling message to businesses. And what this executive order did, I think, was neutralize a lot of that fear that's been coming from agencies, from the regulators to say, no, we want the development of this technology to happen here. So just setting the tone was important. Next we talk about those coordination issues where you have this panoply of federal regulators that are all applying their laws to this space and that's their job by the way. Um, So that's what they should be doing, but we do need a coordinated approach because sometimes you have confusing and conflicting statements coming out of different agencies and it creates a lot of red tape for businesses to have to navigate. So that coordination should be helpful But I am always cautiously optimistic about government efforts uh, because I do want to make sure that through that process, the industry has a voice. And so we're doing everything we can to inform those conversations and the studies that are coming out of the executive order. But I think it does have the the key elements to provide regulatory clarity, and, and we hope We hope for the future of our industry that it achieves that.
0: One of the things that's come up as a a theme from the interviews we've been doing this week while we've been in New York City, um, it's about interoperability. And, you know, some people talk about it on a technical level between blockchains and layer twos. But then there's also an, an element of interoperability and cooperation that sort of needs to happen in the industry writ large between... Everyone who wants to see it grow up and become mainstream adopted. But, you know, as you say, there's like, uh, I don't know, what is it, like 10 or 20 agencies, and then the, all the state-level ones. That's just in the U.S., because then globally, I mean, in the U.K., we've right. got five at least that want to have a say in it. Um, and then on the Trade Body Association, I mean, you guys are the OGs in this space. You've been around the longest and probably have the widest membership and um, maybe most influential membership. Uh, but then there's been all these other trade bodies that just sort of like pop up as well, like mushrooms overnight. And it's almost hard to choose, you know, where to put your time and your resources. And it seems like uh, maybe there needs to be some consolidation or maybe it's just cooperation. I don't know. Do, you, do you get a sense we'll head towards that or there'll just be a continued proliferation of influence <laughs> and ideas?
1: Probably not. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, like constantly new advocates and lobbyists popping up. That really has been the state of play since the beginning. Um, When we launched the chamber, um, I met with a group of executives. They wanted me to come in and kind of show them all of our stuff about what we're doing. Next thing I knew, they set up their own thing. They've ripped off, like, stuff on our presentation um like people do that. Um I don't really know why, but whatever. Um so it's uh, it's just a reality of the business that we're in when it comes to public policy and having influence over the process that to me is an incredibly um uh a powerful position to be in. I I take it as a sacred role which is why you know, I, we set this up as a nonprofit. I don't think you should profit off of that, um, but other people do. And you can make a lot of money lobbying. There's a huge industry in DC around that. And I wanted to protect the industry Uh, from that but at the end of the day this industry is growing companies have regulatory issues Uh, some companies will use a regulatory strategy for their benefit we're seeing a lot of money being pumped into lobbying work and I, I don't see that changing it doesn't mean I agree with that I just that is the state of play so for people who want to be involved in public policy there's a few things you need to think about one what is the strategy for your company like, what are you trying to achieve? What do you need to achieve? Are you trying to get things through a regulatory approval process? Well, there's you know, specific people that do that. You know, Do you wanna make sure that the US has a competitive landscape and that businesses can operate here and we have a thriving ecosystem? Well, that's more advocacy work, like what the chamber does. Do you just wanna look important? There's places, you know, there's platforms you can for. set up for that. So you really need to just think through what it is you're trying to achieve. And then if you're trying to navigate all these different ways you can get plugged in, you know, I certainly uh, recommend looking at who's involved. You know, who actually controls this thing? Is it one person? Is it one company? Or is it an industry thing? Um, And I'm not saying it's necessarily a right or wrong thing, but there's just different ways to go about it. Um, And then I do think that there is an advantage to having multiple groups saying different things things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, multiple groups saying the same thing, different groups saying the same thing. So, you know, we can go out and oppose something. But like here in New York, and we have labor unions opposing the same bill, we're very different groups, but we're saying the same thing. And that's really resonating with the policymakers here. So there, there is pot there, there are good things out of how to multiple groups, but I understand it can be kind of a lot to, to navigate. That
0: makes a lot of sense. It's almost like having multiple nodes validating block, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, we're a decentralized community.
0: Um, what's next for the Chamber? Uh, I know DC Blockchain Summit is coming up this summer. What can we expect from that?
1: Yeah, so the DC Blockchain Summit will be on May 24th. That's a Tuesday. Um, we're hosting it at this, at this super cool venue called the Capital Turnaround. Um, it's like a tech... Techie venue um, right around the corner from Capitol Hill. Um, so uh, in the past we held this event at Georgetown University, but we just like were bursting at the seams of their auditorium. So we moved to a much bigger space. Um, Our title sponsors are Deloitte, Binance U.S., and Dapper Labs. So they will all be there, and they will all be sharing their latest and greatest innovations um, and uh, investments in the U.S. market. Um, We have many policymakers coming. We have the co-chairs of the Blockchain Caucus, uh, Congressman Darren Soto from my home state of Florida, and then Tom Emmer, um, from Minnesota. We have Crypto Mom, Hester Peirce, SEC Commissioner. Uh, we have the comptroller of the OCC, Michael Sue, And then Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, will be making his first um, speech in front of the digital asset industry at the DC Blockchain Summit. Um, and we have um, complimentary tickets for students. So for any students that are listening, um, education is a huge mandate for me. Because I think if we want to take this technology mainstream, more people need to understand it. So if you're a student, reach out to us, and we'll make sure you can get a ticket.
0: I'm very excited for this event. Um, was it, it was online last year or was it in person last year? Or was this the first time? Oh, we took a
1: hiatus yeah. for two years because of COVID, yeah. um, which was sad uh, because we hosted it every year for four years on year five, six days before the event was to go live we couldn't move forward. Um, so for the past two years, we've been doing online events. Um, we branded those as Parallel, um, but this is in-person uh, and uh, the DC blockchain. summit. So this will be our fifth summit, but seventh year.
0: That's awesome. Um, thank you very much for coming in. I, I'm in awe of all of the agencies and peoples you have to keep track of. <laughs> I, don't, I don't envy you, I couldn't do it, but uh, it's amazing. Spreadsheet um, management. <laughs> yeah. I've got about 10 questions I ask everyone. Where do you see, I'm gonna say the crypto industry, in one year versus 10 years. And if you want to just look at that from a policy perspective, that's fine. Or if you want to go macro and think, where's crypto going to be in one year versus 10 years? That's cool too.
1: Okay, well, I'm more of like a macro thinker. So in terms of one year, probably not a lot different. I mean, on the policy side, it's just getting more complicated. So I'll be probably a little bit more stressed out a year from now. 10 years from now, um, I believe that Bitcoin is on, it's, it's a technology, it's a network, we measure those with S-curves, and I believe we'll be at that upper end of the S-curve, which means 90% adoption. Once Bitcoin hits 90% adoption, we're looking at 1 million to 10 million plus per Bitcoin. And once we hit that, I think the world is going to change, and the way we transact is going to change. So I believe this is truly re- revolutionary, and that's the future that I see.
0: You might regret even more not spending your beer money and college. I know, yeah. Back in <laughs> Okay, um, if there's one thing you could change about the industry, what would it be?
1: One thing I would change... Well, I, I would say... Um, it is a very masculine industry. And a lot of great guys in this space. Um, but when I got into the industry, um, at the time... Uh, according to different surveys, it was 9% female, um, which basically felt like me and like a couple of my friends. <laughs> um, and there's a lot more women in the industry today, but blockchain, it brings together the tech space and the financial space, which are both male-dominated industries. So I would like to see a lot more women and more kind of even balance at different crypto events uh, of, of the, the male to female ratio.
0: That is a perfectly fair request. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there one piece of technology in your own life that you couldn't live without?
1: Okay, so in the 21st century, as Americans, we like middle-class Americans, I don't know about all your viewers, but I came from a middle-class family. Um, we are the most spoiled like, c- c- citizenry ever, <laughs> and there's so many things that we probably just take for granted um, from like, running water electricity, air conditioning. So I think there's a lot of technologies that I don't think I could live without that I fully don't even know because we just take advantage of those things on a daily basis.
0: I think one of our earlier guests during the pandemic said his favorite piece of technology was the shower.
1: So oh that, yeah. Yeah. love my shower. Hot showers <laughs> for hot sure. Shower yeah, gotta be hot. <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: Um, what does your weekend look like if you get time off?
1: my weekends are usually for R&R. Like I love going to the spa. I love getting massages, try to catch up on my workouts. I'm catching up on reading. Like I'm finally to a point where I can like actually start reading books again after working like a mad person for so long. Like I try to carve out space to just read things I want to read. I go to church on Sundays um, and to, usually I'll go for like a bike ride or something outside in nature. So like I'm like rehabbing myself over the weekends from and all you the. You
0: live in the sunshine state, so I you do. must get outside a lot.
1: You know, I'm also like very skincare conscious, so I'm like putting on sunscreen every day, wearing hats, wearing sunglasses. So like I'm trying not to. Well, come visit us in the UK. <laughs> we don't get to see the sunshine, but once a year, so yeah.
0: Okay, um, do you have any movies that you could watch over and over again and never get tired
1: of? That would be old school, which I've already seen like a hundred times. Bring your green hat. We're going streaking. Love Will Ferrell.
0: Excellent. (laughs) Do you have any catchphrases that you live by or mottos?
1: A catchphrase? that I Oh, I don't want to be like anybody else. I really love being my own person. I'm a very independent person. I don't like following the trends. I don't like following the fads. If everybody's hanging out over here, I'm going to be over there, which is probably why I gravitated to this crazy place of, of crypto. But now more people are, are coming to, 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 to my side, but I don't want to be like everybody else.
0: Who should we all follow on Twitter?
1: On, well, me obviously. Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: shameless self plugs are welcome here. What's your, what, what's the handle?
1: Uh, Perry Ann DC.
0: Okay, excellent. Um, what was the last thing that surprised you?
1: I uh, that surprised me. Okay, so I just read this book. I just finished it this weekend called The Evolution of Mating, mm. um, and uh, it talks all about mating strategies as they've evolved over many, many, many years.
0: In the, in the animal kingdom or the, the human ones? Oh, he,
1: well, the human, humans. Okay. I was, <laughs> I don't some, know, it sounded like a, a
0: David Attenborough kind of thing. There's
1: uh, there's some uh, animal antidotes in there too, but um, I they <laughs> do all these studies, and one of them was on tender, and they found that 30% of the men on tender are married Ugh. Isn't that awful? It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. Stay away from Tinder. It's dangerous. <laughs> and men in general. Unless I you're guess. into that, but <laughs> not okay. for me.
0: Who should we have as the next guest on our show?
1: So in the spirit of having uh, promoting women, I'd recommend Jordan Kruger. She's the CEO of Vesper Finance. Um, she's also a data scientist and one of the smartest people I've, I've met in crypto.
0: Excellent. This is the last question. If you somehow got to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask him or her one question, what would it be?
1: I would ask him just his his his, his input on my work. Um, when we started the chamber in 2014, I mean, we were the first policy organization dedicated for crypto. And at that time, you know, crypto was Bitcoin. You had Bitcoin. There was like Doge, this meme coin called Dogecoin. Maybe you've heard of it. Litecoin. <laughs> a couple of little altcoins. But like it was mostly Bitcoin. And now you have an entire ecosystem. Um, but... I've always been hugely impacted by Satoshi's work, and um, I would love to hear what he thinks about what we've done at the chamber. And from a policy perspective, what would be his or her vision? um, And how can we improve to realize Satoshi's vision?
0: I really hope that happens.
1: I would love that. I I don't have, it's not on my calendar. If you can make it happen, that'd be great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Perrin, thank you very much for coming in. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thanks, Tyler. Great to be here.
0: To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Perrian's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at Copperhq or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the day's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give it a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. if you'd like to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly at kylo.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Tally Spear with support from Melee Mountfort, Eva Leela, and Kate Light. New episodes coming up fortnightly. And in the meantime, stay safe.